Today I'll be reading from 1 Kings 18, 36-46, which can be found in your Pew Bible on page 330. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said, said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is a sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, Go back. The seventh time the servant, the servant reported, A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose and heavy rain came on on, and Ahab rode off toward Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and, tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. James 5, 13-18 says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make them well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. There are a variety of themes that come through uh, this week as we look at a convergence of topics that we've been uh, exploring. One is Bible 101, which is this kind of revisitation of the scriptures in its themes and in its basic stories in the hopes that we will reacquaint ourselves in an adult kind of way, uh, in a mature kind of way with these scriptures. That they won't just be something that were part of our childhood if in fact they were, And if they weren't, that we'll get acquainted with them in the first place, because one of my deep and abiding concerns for our congregation and for congregations everywhere is biblical literacy. We have become a people not of the book. We've become a people like any other people, 
and uh, we do our best and we're busy and we're nice and we're productive in the world, but we don't know our Bibles the way we have been called to know them. And that's a deep concern that, that uh, I've been preaching to. The other convergence is this time of year that we're in. With fall on or rapidly approaching here, uh, seasonal change, shorter days, cooler days, uh, leaves on the few deciduous trees we have, uh, so forth. It, it, it's, a, it's a new time of year. And with it, the promise of harvest. And we're going to be continuing to explore that theme as we move on into harvest season and Thanksgiving time as we celebrate it as Americans. There's another reality underlying all of this, and that is uh, the underlying power of the one true God. In every story we are confronted as we look at faithfulness and unfaithfulness, as we look at the lives of individuals, the constant challenge is there is but one God, and who will you serve? Will you be serving that one true God, or will you be serving someone or something else? And finally today, uh, we bring in another theme yet that converges with all of these things we've uh, been looking at and we'll look at today, and that is the, the power and importance of prayer in this equation. So we have much that we've covered and, and much to talk about. There are a number of stories in Scripture and themes having to do with rain, right? And rain stands as sort of an existing uh, metaphor in our own culture. Last week when I was talking about agriculture and uh, the ancient versus contemporary models, in America today we're not so dependent on rain. There are still regions that get enough rain that they still depend on rain to keep lawns green and so forth. But most of us, especially on the West Coast or western half of the United States, understand that any kind of agriculture is going to require the presence of water, and that comes through irrigation, through massive, massive uh, canals that have been built and systems that bring water from distant places to our, our crops and fields, and sprinkler systems and drip systems and so forth. We no longer worry too much about whether we've had enough rain or all the rain we want. I think the extent of most of our worries is, are the reservoirs full enough to provide rain for me to keep my lawn green and my showers 20 minutes long? Uh, that latter one is my special concern. And uh, short of that, we're not too worried. Uh, we worry about water rates. Anybody worry about water rates a little bit? Sometimes we're watching the bottom line and we, we worry about rainfall because it means water in reservoirs, which means plenty of water, which means hopefully the rates don't go up too much on us. We have in our culture a number of sayings around rain as well, which I'll get to in just a minute. But in the biblical model, coming back to that, of agriculture, rain was essential. If the floodwaters didn't come up and soak the land in a river or the rains didn't come, there was drought. There were no crops. People perished or had to move and relocate to find places where there had been rain where there was still food and there was still life. They were very dependent upon God 
in that way as they understood it. You see, evaporation wasn't a process well understood by ancients. So the very presence of clouds and the offering of rain was a direct gift of God to the earth. It was part of this uh, cycle, this view, this world view, if you will. And so rain has historically been something people have definitely prayed for. One of the characters we've talked about in our Bible 101 series has been Noah. We didn't spend a lot of time with him, but mentioned him. Noah is one who, if, if you're familiar with the story, was told by God that there was going to be a new phenomena, something called rain. That it was going to come not in small quantities, but in massive quantities. And that it would uh, flood the earth, and that he should build a big boat. And a blueprint of sorts was given to Noah for the building of this boat, which he did for a period, a very long period. Next 100 years. Boat was built. The rains came. The doors of the ark were shut and sealed. And those aboard survived, and those not on board died. Man and animal alike. We get to the end of that story, and it's a bit odd, isn't it? God says, you know, this thing about destroying the world with a flood, I don't know if I'm going to do that again. Here's my sign. My promise to you that this is never going to happen again. But rains continue to fall. It becomes part of our cycle, our season our weather, our way of being in the world. There are lots of theories about uh, why there was no rain prior to Noah, or if, in fact, that's a reality. Uh, you can explore those. That's lots of fun sometimes to kind of sleuth those pieces out. But there are other characters in Scripture who deal with rain as well. And one of the main ones is Elijah, who we're going to uh, get to shortly. In the New Testament, rain is used in a variety of texts, Jesus says the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Meaning that when it comes to the natural blessings of God, there isn't individual discrimination. The sunshine shines on us all. The grass in an evil man's yard can be as green or greener than the grass in a righteous man's yard. Rain is used in terms of things other than water as well. It can rain fire, can't it? We find in the Old Testament that fire rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying them. We find in the New Testament that there comes a time when, again, the devil and his angels are cast into a lake of fire. There is a rain of fire, as it were, destroying the earth at the end of time. We find rain being a metaphor for the way in which the tongues of fire fell upon believers in an upper room at Pentecost. The fire rained down upon them. Now, these all pull to some very, very, very old concepts. Earth, wind, water, fire should be familiar to us. 
the philosopher Zeno, and it's present in the uh, stories of scripture and creation as well. Elemental sort of theory. And then you have, of course, descriptions of God. And they vary, don't they? But in one, he's a pillar of mist covering Israel by day, and in the same pillar, he's a pillar of what by night? Fire. The Lord is described as a consuming fire sometimes. So when we see the rain of fire, when we see this rain of tongues of flame lighting upon people's heads in the upper room at Pentecost, we see the rain of the Holy Spirit. And we talk about that theologically. We look for that day again when God's people through perseverance, through preaching the gospel, through prayer, through preparation, are ready for the final reign of the Holy Spirit. That reign that comes to us to enable us to do what we need to do prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's described as the latter reign. So that's just a few pieces. In our culture, we have a lot of sayings about rain, too. Save your pennies for a rainy day. And what do we mean by rainy day? Hard times. Don't you love it? They must have been listening to L.A. weathermen when they made that up, you know? These weather ladies and weathermen on these channels just drive me nuts. I don't know about you. Well, it's 68 degrees and overcast. Hopefully we'll get some good weather here someday. What do they want? It seems that if it's not 80 and sunshiny, we have bad weather in Southern California. No, no, no. I think minus 37 with a wind chill factor of 35 degrees, that's bad weather. Let's go to New Hampshire, maybe Minnesota, huh? Kids bundle up like the Michelin Man, go outside, play for five minutes, freeze to death, come back in, their mothers unwrap them, thaw them in front of the stove, and do the whole thing all over again. That's bad weather. Arizona, Phoenix, 122. That's bad weather. Rain, rain, go away. Hello. Come again another day. Yeah. When it rains, it pours. And by that we mean that a little bad luck somehow mates and makes babies. And when we have a little bad luck, we have a lot of bad luck. Of course, that can go the other direction too, right? Good fortune, or so it would seem, blessings can come in great quantities as well. By the way, in your bulletin, there's a little play on uh, today's theme with rain. So see if you pick that up and let uh, John Paul Rave know when you, when you uh, find it. Our story today is about the Osama bin Laden of biblical time. I am talking about the prophet Elijah. I'm going to call him Elijah bin Laden. Elijah bin Laden was a desperately wanted man. 
Israel, as we had talked about through the time of the judges, came to God, fell away from God. Things went well for them, then they didn't. And it seems as we go through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and the end period of the judges before that, it just gets worse and worse and worse. There's a whole spat of terrible and evil and ungodly kings. And Israel is, for all intents and purposes, living a life that has abandoned the knowledge of the one true God and the service to that God. For those of you who had the privilege of going with Jill and I to Israel this last year, we got to see the area of Samaria, see the approximate area where um, Naboth's vineyard would have been, some of these kinds of pieces. We got to see the approximate area, and they found some, in the excavation, some ruins on the hills where the palaces of King Ahab would have been, and Jezebel, his wicked Canaanite queen. Through intermarriage, through uh, greed, through all sorts of means, the, Israelis leader, the, the leaders of Israel had lost track of God and his purposes and his blessings, his commands, his sovereignty. King Ahab was so passive. He was so passive that Jezebel called the shots. Now that may, uh, a give and take always has its place in the domestic world, but it was a savage thing for Israel to deal with because her agenda was clear. She had no tolerance for the God of Israel. She had no tolerance for the worship of the true God of Israel. She was a servant of Baal and Ashtoreth, and anything else was heresy. Ashtoreth would be the one. And she acted on it. She made it her purpose to extinguish every prophet, every priest who was a follower of Yahweh, everyone. It was time for massive manhunts and assassinations. It was a terrible time in Israel to be a believer. A terrible time to be a follower. It was a life-threatening time. You know, the, just I have a little aside for you. One of the things I'm probably going to talk about someday more in detail is the threats facing us today. You know, we, we like to think about faith in terms of what it would take to get us to a point of martyrdom. And the more traditional your upbringing, the more you think about the scariness of the end times and what we'll be called to do in terms of, of that. I would suggest to you that in some ways those are galvanizing times and in that way they're easier than the times we live in now. Right now people just think faith is silly. Lots of people. The camps that are growing are not the camps of the believers, but the unbelievers. Even in our contemporary culture, our city here, sat down with four very kind, very nice people from the city this week for our MUP process. 
just inquired briefly as a point of illustration if any of them had any background at all in church. Four of four had no background religiously at all. None. None. The challenge facing the church today, and we all feel it, is apathy. It's distraction. Great things are happening when a church is rapidly expanding or when it's under tremendous pressure the other direction. But it's so hard to be faithful in ordinary times. So hard. But it was extraordinary times in Israel. Jezebel had persecuted and killed so many. There was a very faithful man, a prophet we call Obadiah, who was in the court of Ahab, a believer, but silently. He knew where his head belonged and where he didn't want to see it roll. But he had surreptitiously taken 100 prophets of the true God. They had schools of prophets back then. I don't know that uh, we would use the same term necessarily, but schools of prophets, 100 of them he had taken and hid in two separate caves, 50 each, according to the scriptures. He had stolen or sequestered supplies enough to care for their needs in terms of food and water and was maintaining them in secrecy. Reminds me of stories from the Holocaust. It's not a good time in Israel. Now back to Elijah bin Laden. Elijah got into trouble because he called for the worship of the true God and declared that there would be no rain. No rain. Oh, that's fighting words right there. He went into hiding, was sustained by the Lord in a variety of ways. There was a raven who brought him food. There was a widow who provided him food. Let's turn to 1 Kings 18, 17, and start looking at the story. Ahab becomes king of Israel in, in chapter 16, verse 29. It's the son of Omri. These are all evil kings. Ahab, son of Omri, verse 30, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And it goes on to explain how. 33, he set up an altar, 32, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria and made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all of the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. A word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. And then there's the story of the widow of Zarephath. 
When we get to 18, today's story, uh, we come to the story of Elijah and Obadiah. Now, Elijah was a prophet in the line of Moses and in the preceding line of Christ. That is to say, he's one of the three great prophets of Scripture. And part of his greatness came from a story that I'm not going to spend much time with this morning. It's when he goes to the widow of Zarephath's home, there's a miracle performed. He raises her child from the dead. This miracle sets him apart as it sets Christ apart in his own ministry later on. It's why at the Mount of Transfiguration, two key figures of Scripture are there with Christ, Moses and Elijah brings with him the promise. And there are lots of nuances in all of this I wish we had time to explore. Christ um, and Elijah have many, many parallels, which would be, maybe I'll present that in another sermon. It's a lot of fun to, to, to look at that. But you see them as you read through these, these stories, if you pay attention to the details. In chapter 18, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. The famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. As I had told you earlier, Obadiah was a believer and had hid the prophets. Ahab said to Obadiah, verse 5, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass and keep the horses and mules alive so we'll not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land where they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him immediately, bowed down to the ground and said, is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied, go and tell your master Elijah is here. I love the response. In the modern vernacular, it's, you must be kidding. Not a chance. But back then he says, what have I done wrong? That you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. And this is why Elijah, I call Elijah bin Laden. As surely as the Lord lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now you tell me, go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I am your servant. I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty each, and supplied them with food and water. Now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here? He will kill me. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. This was a matter of state. Representatives had been sent to surrounding countries. The land had been scoured by the king's soldiers and men. 
There was a price tag on his head. He was wanted in a big way with a capital W because his crime against the state was huge. He had cursed the state with no rain for several years. The famine had come and people were starving. And the king had a problem domestically. I'm guessing that if our economy had fully recovered, if we were all re-employed and doing well, that even among us, the most devout of Republicans would not have too much to complain about when it came to our president. Find something, I'm sure, as we all do. But when times are not good, oh boy, whether Republican or Democrat, we have lots to say about our president, don't we? Yes, no? Okay. Israel had lots to say about their king, too, and his gods. It was a domestic problem for King Ahab. No rain, no crops, no economy, no food, no movement, people unhappy, and it is all Elijah's fault. And when Elijah shows up, he says to him, what do you have to say for yourself, you troublemaker? I'm guessing that's the clean and sanitized version. I'm guessing that's the scrubbed version of Scripture myself. I don't know what Ahab said, but he certainly wasn't happy to see Elijah. And Elijah didn't back off. You're the one who's created the trouble, king, by not serving the one true God. Well, to get to the story, there's a showdown. Elijah asks that all of the prophets of Baal and Ashereth, and I didn't realize this. I always thought there were 400. Turns out there were 400 and 450. So there were 850 prophets of Baal and Ashereth that were taken to Mount Carmel against one prophet of the Lord. Separate locations, separate altars. They built an altar, were not to do anything with it, to place fire within it, put wood on it, selected their own bull. The god of Baal got to go first with his representatives, and they selected their bull and cut it up and put it on the wood and put it on the, the stone altar that they had constructed, and they began their prayers and their incantations, their rituals and their dancing. And the more uh, ecstatic they became in their worship of their false god, and the more nothing happened, the more desperate they became, and they began to cut themselves, adding blood sacrifice that they might be heard. And Elijah doesn't give them any breaks. Again, I assure you, you're looking at the sanitized version of Scripture. Even Elijah gets kind of pointed with them. But as your scriptures say, where is he? Maybe he's sleeping or on vacation or some of those signs. Salt that up a little bit and you have the picture. He's taunting the prophets of Baal. Nothing's happening. Baal is not listening. That's because he's not God. Elijah, meanwhile, goes to the broken down and destroyed altar that had been there and had been erected to the true God, and he took 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel, and he re-erected the altar. He commanded that a trench be dug around it. 
he put his wood and his bull on it. A lot of work, slaughtering a bull and getting it up there. And then he asked for water. Oh, what an insult. What an injury. There's no water in the land. They've scoured the land, dug for water, done whatever they could. And sure enough, water has been brought for the people this day. And he takes one barrel of water and dumps it on the bowl, the wood, the rock, the altar. Orders another one to be brought, and a third, and they are dumped on the altar. And he begins to pray. There's power in this moment. Because a true servant of God is putting his heart and his mind before the living God. One called to go before a king and declare that there would be no rain is now called to confront a king and let Israel choose. He's already issued the call in the same voice that Yahshua did, the Lord saves. Serve, choose ye this day whom you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. Elijah issues this call to Israel. Choose. Get off of your complacency. Give up your false gods. Choose. Nobody says a thing. There's no response. The great evangelist goes unanswered. There's not one baptism. Not one. And he prays. There is rain immediately. Fire is rained from heaven. It's not any fire. It's a consuming fire. It's the Lord's fire. The bull is consumed. The wood is consumed. The rocks are consumed. The water is consumed. And the people, in desperation, wide-eyed and filled with shock, talk about shock and awe, say, the Lord, he is God. We will serve the Lord. He is truly God. Duh! Could we not have remembered this? And yet aren't we the same way? Well, it's lovely, Lord, that you've led in the past, but what are you doing for me now? We're the same way. Lord, I, I, you know, I want to serve you, but it's so hard to believe in you. In fact, everybody I talk to who doesn't believe says, if only I could really see. The truth is, it's by God's mercy that they don't, because he's a consuming fire. What is it with us that wants to see and experience for ourselves? What is it with us that doesn't, can't hold on to, a, to faith? What is it about us that so quickly rejects our past? The memory of what God has done for whatever suits us in the moment. It rains fire. Elijah invoking the commands of Deuteronomy, 
commands the people to detain the prophets of Baal and Ashereth. He takes them down to the Kishon Valley and makes sure they are slaughtered. I have misspoken of this in the past. I have said he killed 400 prophets of Baal. He may have. He killed 850 people that day. Reference is made to Elijah's sword. I don't know that he did all of that personally, but he was there and he had it done. The valley of Kishon flowed with the blood of the unfaithful. Before he left Mount Carmel and accomplished this act, though, he reminded the, the king, he said, you know, or he, he talked to his servant, he said, do you see any sign of rain? No sign of rain. Any sign of rain? No sign of rain. Any sign of rain? Seven times. And it reminds us of completion and perfection. It reminds us of the cycle of created order. It reminds us of Naaman and his seven dips into the Jordan River. It reminds us of how seven pops up in our scriptures over and over and over again. And the seventh time, when the time is complete and perfect, there is in the distance a small cloud the size of a man's fist. And Elijah says to Ahab, you better get going. I hear the rain coming. This little cloud the size of a man's fist would grow until it rained. And that becomes the scenario of the second coming as well, too. We see a little cloud in the distance the size of a man's fist, and it fills the earth. The Lord is come. There's kind of a in-the-line-of-fire thing, a little secret service thing almost. Ahab grabs a hold of, I mean, uh, excuse me, Elijah grabs a hold of Ahab's chariot and runs him all the way back to the, the palace there in Samaria. And then he confronts Jezebel. Uh-oh. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Well, in this case, a woman's religion and faith scorned. She orders or promises Elijah that as he has killed her prophets, she will not rest until he lies dead. And after all of this, terror is stricken in his heart. <laughs> Poor guy. So faithful. So long-suffering. So true. And he's tired. What a day. And he starts to run. And he runs, and he runs, and he runs. And he collapses. Forty days and forty nights, Elijah journeys, just as Jesus did in the wilderness. He goes to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, just as Jesus went up into the wilderness and the mountains to hear the Spirit. Elijah goes to the mountain, which probably scholars think is probably Mount Sinai, about 250 miles from Samaria, 40 days and 40 nights of journey. He gets there and he goes up on the mountain just as Moses went up on the mountain of God. And the mountain splits and creates a crevasse with this incredible fury of wind and movement. 
Must have been awesome to see. And Elijah listens, and the Lord's not there. Fire breaks out on the mountain, and he looks. The Lord's not there. But he hears in that small voice, that quiet voice, the voice of the Lord. He's been ministered to by angels. And he's been spoken to. And the Lord is God in Israel once again. Are we going to be rainmakers? I don't just mean at our law firms where we bring in the big clients or in our businesses where we bring our companies the most profit. I'm talking about something deeper. Are we going to be the kind of people who speak with the voice of faith? Who stand for a true God in difficult times? Whose memories are preserved by the Spirit that we might not forget the ways the Lord has led us present and past? Are we going to be a people open and ready for the reign of the Spirit? Are we going to be a people ready for the harvest as it comes? Are we going to be a people of prayer? One last thought. Our reading in James said, if you're happy, sing a song. If you have some kind of need, Pray. If you're sick, bring the elders together and pray. Let me tell you a story, people. Elijah prayed the prayer of faith and it didn't rain for three years. He remembered. And at the end of three years, Elijah prayed again. And once again, it rained in Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. We serve one living God. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with us now and forevermore. Amen.